the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. Clark Hilton, by the way, is uh, engineering today's program. James Blend producing. Today we're going to hear from um, Jeremy Treat, author of Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. That'll be in the five o'clock hour. Well, taking a look at some of the headlines from the day, Attorney General William Barr has appointed a U.S. attorney to examine the origins of the Russia investigation and to determine if intelligence collection efforts targeting the Trump campaign were lawful and appropriate. Um, John Durham, uh, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, will conduct the inquiry. Uh, The uh, move comes as the Trump administration is pushed for answers on why federal authorities conducted the surveillance, as well as whether Democrats were the ones who improperly colluded with foreign actors. So the announcement was made. And from all accounts, John Durham is apolitical, but he's a a, a crack attorney. So we'll see what a prosecutor, I should say. So we'll see what. Um, he is able to determine, and the expectation is this won't drag on for, for months. All eyes will be on the um, on Wall Street after U.S. stocks tumbled on Monday with escalating trade tension and rhetoric between the U.S. and China. Shares opened moderately lower in Asia after the Wall Street um, uh, uh, dismal day on Monday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 617 points, recovering from a loss of over 700 points uh, early afternoon, China announced it would hike tariffs on roughly $60 billion in U.S. imports in a retaliation against the Trump administration's decision last week to increase tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. Poised to affect over 5,000 U.S. products, the tariffs will range to as high as 25 percent, up from between 5 to 10 percent currently, and take effect June 1st. Today's the 14th of May. Well, the Trump administration is also dealing with tensions with both North Korea and Iran, two conflicts that have slowly escalated over the past week. North Korea on Tuesday demanded the U.S. return a cargo ship used to transport um, what was uh, seized in violation of international sanctions against the rogue regime, calling it a robbery. An unnamed North Korea foreign ministry spokesman accused the U.S. of betraying the spirit of last year's summit. Um, between the president and Kim Jong-un, according to the country's official Korean Central News Agency. Meanwhile, an American military team assessing blasts that damaged four commercial ships off the coast of the United Arab Emirates on Sunday has blamed Iran or Iranian-backed proxies using explosive charges, according to sources. The United Arab Emirates asked the U.S. to help investigate the damage, which Gulf officials have characterized as sabotage. The U.S. has warned ships that Iran or its proxies could be targeting maritime traffic in the region, and America has moved additional ships and aircraft into the region. While there's been pushback on a previously secret White House plan to arrest thousands of migrant parents and children in nearly a dozen U.S. cities, led to the departures of former 
Homeland Security uh, Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and former acting ICE Director Ron Vitilio from the Trump administration. Well, the administration wanted to target migrant families that had crossed into the U.S. from Mexico in an attempt to show that the U.S. wasn't going uh, to back down on its border stance by detaining and deporting illegal immigrant families. The Washington Post first reported Nielsen and Vitilio uh, challenged the administration's plan, citing lack of preparation, public outrage and worries that the operation would use border resources. These factors were reportedly part of the reason Trump pushed uh, both officials out of the administration. And author Mark Stein reacted on Monday to actress Alyssa Milano's uh, strike launched in opposition to a new Georgia law that bans abortion after a baby's heartbeat is detected. Stein said on Tucker Carlson tonight that until this point, uh, many pro-choice advocates made claims to be to the effect of abstinence education doesn't work, so we have to have abortion. Um, But abstinence apparently does work when Alyssa Milano is commanding it, he remarked. We just cannot risk pregnancy. Join me uh, by not having sex, Milano said, uh, paraphrasing a recent tweet. Well, Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, as I mentioned, has appointed an attorney to investigate the origins of the Russia investigation. And we learned just moments ago that, in fact, uh, Trump Jr. has reached a last minute agreement to testify before the Senate Intel Committee. Uh, He um, is going to be testifying before the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee. The development capped a contentious episode that began when the panel, led by Chairman Richard Burr and ranking member Mark Warner, uh, subpoenaed the president's son over remarks he made while testifying before the committee in 2017. Trump Jr. had been concerned about an open-ended time and subject commitment. In addition, um, it's been learned that he was prepared to make the commitment, uh, uh, make, rather make the committee hold him in contempt and had a defiant letter drafted and ready to send. But at the last minute, the committee reached out to resolve the dispute. Ultimately, the panel agreed to limit questioning to one to two hours with narrow room for follow up. A source familiar with the discussions said that the panel never would agree to limit topics. Trump Jr.'s letter of refusal, which was never sent, cited the 20-plus hours of testimony and thousands of documents that he's already given to congressional committees, as well as his exoneration in special counsel Robert Mueller's report. The committee's demand to have Trump Jr. testify again reportedly is related to former Trump attorney Michael Cohen's testimony earlier this year. Cohen, who reported to prison this week, is... Uh, to begin a three-year sentence, told the House committee that he had briefed Trump Jr. approximately 10 times about a plan to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. That apparently conflicted with testimony that had been given to the committee by Trump Jr. earlier. In 2017, he told the Senate Intelligence Committee he was only peripherally aware of the proposal. In his draft letter to the committee, he pointed out that Cohen has pled guilty to multiple federal crimes, including lying to Congress. The Intelligence Committee's demand rankled top Republicans, including the president and Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham. Anything based on what Michael Cohen said is worthless testimony. Michael Cohen is a worthless witness. And if I were Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyer, I would tell him, you don't need to go back into this environment anymore. You've been there for hours and hours and hours, and nothing being alleged here changes the outcome of the Mueller investigation. I would call it a day. Well, Trump Jr. has testified before the congressional committees multiple times as part of their Russia investigations. His first, he first fell under scrutiny in the early summer of 2017 after it was revealed that he'd helped to organize and then attend a meeting with a lawyer, a Russian lawyer, in Trump Tower in New York City. The meeting initially was billed as one where Trump Jr., a uh, member of the Trump campaign could obtain dirt on Hillary Clinton for their 
uh, for their benefit in the 2016 election. The meeting apparently did not reveal any dirt on Clinton, but Trump Jr.'s son-in-law, Jared, rather Trump son-in-law, Jared Kushner and Trump Jr., as well as former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, attended the June 2016 meeting. Special counsel Robert Mueller also investigating uh, that meeting uh, indicated both the Moscow project and the June 2016 meeting are top priorities for the committee's questioning, according to the source. So um, it continues. Uh, Let's see here. Um, U.S. officials listed three hundred billion dollars more of Chinese goods as possible uh, focus of uh, tariffs. Uh, immigration offenses became the biggest category of federal crimes in fiscal year 2018, surpassing the number of drug offenses. Crimes relating to immigration comprised 34.4 percent of all federal sentencing cases, an increase from last year's 30 percent, according to the United States Sentencing Commission's annual report. And as recently as 2017, over 600,000 of those who entered the United States on legal visas overstayed. And a new Rasmussen report uh, says that National Telephone and Online Survey finds that 62 percent of likely U.S. voters think the federal government should find these individuals and make them go home. Again, these are visa overstays entered into the country legally and overstayed the agreement they made with the country for the length of time they could legally remain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The Supreme Court on Monday ruled 5-4 to four against Apple, saying iPhone users can pursue their antitrust lawsuit involving the tech giant's signature electronic marketplace, the App Store. The iPhone users argued that uh, Apple's 30% commission on sales through the App Store is an unfair use of monopoly power that results in inflated prices passed on to consumers. And a few weeks after several of the stars of Fox's hit television series, Empire, wrote a letter to executive and executives and producers demanding the return of embattled actor Jesse Smollett, Fox Entertainment announced that this upcoming season will be the scandal-damaged show's last. And on this day in 1948, the independent state of Israel is proclaimed in Tel Aviv by David Ben-Gurion, who becomes the first prime minister. President Harry S. Truman immediately recognizes the new nation. On this day in 1955, representatives from eight communist bloc countries, including the Soviet Union, signed the Warsaw Pact in Poland. The pact would be dissolved in 1991. And on this day in 1961, freedom riders are attacked by violent mobs in Anniston and Birmingham, Alabama. On this day in 73, the National Right to Life Committee is incorporated and... In 2001, the Supreme Court ruled 8-0 to zero that there is no exception in federal law for people to use marijuana for medical purposes. That was only 2001. Well, as mentioned, Attorney General William Barr has tapped the U.S. attorney in Connecticut to examine the origins of the Russian election interference probe, according to uh, reports. John Durham, the top federal prosecutor in Connecticut, has been asked to get to the bottom of the Justice Department's investigation into members of the Trump's presidential campaign. Mr. Durham's probe will focus on whether the Justice Department lawfully collected intelligence on Trump campaign and associates. According to both the New York Times and Associated Press, each citing sources familiar with the matter. It's not clear what investigative powers Mr. Durham will have or whether Mr. Barr will authorize a team or budget. Special Counsel Robert Mueller had a squad of roughly 20 people to conduct his investigation. 
Justice Department spokeswoman Carrie Kupik uh, didn't immediately return a request for comment. Thomas Carson, a spokesman for Mr. Durham, declined comment as well. President Trump has long demanded the Justice Department look into whether the FBI spied on his campaign at the behest of the Obama administration or the Clinton campaign. His calls have increased since Mr. Mueller concluded that uh, there was no evidence the president or members of his campaign colluded with Russia. Mr. Durham's uh, probe is the third known investigation into FBI and Justice Department decisions surrounding the 2016 election. Uh, The Justice Department uh, Inspector General Michael Horowitz is evaluating the Justice Department's wiretaps on former campaign associate Carter Page. And John Huber, the U.S. attorney in Utah, is also reviewing a surveillance warrant obtained by the FBI to spy on Mr. Page. Mr. Horowitz's findings are expected to be released this month or next, while the progress of Mr. Huber's probe has remained shrouded in mystery. In addition, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham, South Carolina Republican, has also pledged an aggressive committee investigation into the FBI and Justice Department's actions in 2016. He said the probe will target how the department was so in the tank for Hillary Clinton and hated Trump's guts. That's a quote. Well, the Durham probe is not a surprise, as Mr. Barr signaled earlier this month that he had uh, people in the department helping him examine intelligence actions related to the Trump campaign. Mr. Barr's disclosure came during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. He said it was a little early to update Congress on his findings, but he envisioned some kind of reporting at the end of of all of this. He has also been steadfast in his claim that the FBI spied on Trump campaign associates, but wasn't sure whether it was legal or justified. I think spying did occur, he said. The question is whether it was adequately predicated. And I am suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated, but I need to explore that. End quote. Well, last week, FBI Director Christopher Wray broke from the bar from Mr. Barr and uh, his use of the word spying to describe the bureau's activities related to the Trump campaign. Well, it's not the term I would use, he said during a hearing before the House Appropriations Committee, going on to say that lots of people have different colloquial phrases. I believe the FBI is engaged in investigative activity and part of investigative activity involves Surveillance, end quote. Mr. Durham, who was sworn in as U.S. attorney on February 22nd, has worked at the Justice Department since 1982 and has plenty of experience conducting high-level special investigations. Attorney General Janet Reno in 1999 asked him to investigate whether two FBI informants, James Whitey Bulger and Stephen Fleming, had corrupted their handlers at the Bureau. In 2008, then-Attorney General Michael um, Mukasey, he appointed Mr. Durham to investigate the destruction of CIA videotapes showing the torture of terrorism suspects during interrogations. The probe closed in November of 2010. That's two years without any criminal charges being filed. Well, the next year, President Barack Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder assigned him to head a Justice Department investigation into the CIA's interrogation techniques. So all of these investigations are underway, and hopefully sooner rather than later, they will be concluded with clear uh, answers to unanswered questions. Well, touting his ability to pass a progressive agenda in the conservative state, Democratic Governor Steve Bullock of Montana announced his candidacy for president. Bullock, who won re-election to a second term in 2016 at the same time as President Trump carried Montana by 20 percentage points, highlighted in a video launching his White House campaign that I don't have the luxury of just talking to people who disagree with me or rather who agree with me. I go all across our states, 147,000 square miles, and look for common ground to get things done. 
He emphasized, that's how I was able to bring Democrats and Republicans together to fight dark money and pass one of the strongest campaign finance laws in the country. End quote. Well, Bullock became the latest Democratic candidate to uh, in this historically large field that is now uh, well past 20. I believe it's 22 and counting. The governor also spotlighted that he worked across the aisle in a state where Republicans dominate the legislature to pass another progressive item, Medicaid expansion. In an interview uh, last summer, Bullock stressed that the law had reduced the percentage of those uninsured in Montana from 20 percent to 7 percent. Last week, Bullock signed a bill to extend the program another six years. Noting his uh, humble beginnings, the governor said in his uh, video that I never thought I'd be running for president. Raised by a single mom, he struggled, or rather we struggled, just to get by. Well, the 53-year-old former Montana attorney general lamented that the opportunity no longer exists for most children to have a fair shot to do better than their parents. That's why we need to defeat Donald Trump in 2020 and defeat the corrupt system that lets campaign money drown out the people's voices so we can finally make good on the promises of a fair shot for everyone. He added, this is the fight of our time. It's been the fight of my career. He declared, I'm running for president, and with your help, we will take our democracy back. It's actually a constitutional republic, but that's another subject. Well, later Tuesday, Bullock will uh, formally kick off his uh, campaign. I think that's now done with an event at his alma mater, Helena High School. Uh, Bullock, who is little known outside of Montana, faces long odds to capture the Democratic presidential nomination. And his late entry into the race means he has little time to raise campaign cash from enough donors to qualify for the first primary debate, which is just a month and a half away. Can you believe that? Primary debates beginning that soon. While he's competing against many rivals who enjoy much stronger name recognition, they're known as prolific fundraiser, Bullock's year in uh, 2015 as chairman of the Democratic Governors Association did allow him to build relationship with his party's donor class. He's currently chair of the nonpartisan National Governors Association. And it appears uh, he may concentrate much of his time and attention on Iowa, which votes first in the caucus and primary calendars. On Thursday, he uh, heads to the Hawkeye State for a three-day, eight-county swing. It's his seventh trip to the state over the past year. In that same time period, he's made one visit to New Hampshire, the state that holds the first primary in the nominating calendar. Well, he announced that that, uh, Jen Ritter, who ran now uh, Colorado Governor Jared Paulus' successful 2018 victory, will serve as his campaign manager, and that Galia Slayen, who directed uh, communications for now Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, his 2018 election will reprise the role for his campaign. In another sign of Iowa's significance, Bullock also named a state director and press secretary in the state. Well, Rod Rosenstein unloaded on former FBI Director James Comey in remarks to the Greater Baltimore uh, Committee on Monday evening, slamming Comey's turn as a partisan pundit, reiterating that he deserved to be fired and faulting him for trampling bright lines that should never be crossed. Rosenstein formally stepped aside as deputy attorney general two days ago. His speech specifically took aim at uh, Comey's comments earlier this month, implying that Rosenstein and Attorney General Bill Barr lacked the inner strength to resist the compromises necessary to survive Mr. Trump, end quote. Well, Comey also derided Rosenstein's character and suggested his soul uh, had been consumed in small bits. The former FBI boss, who has taken to posting numerous photographs of himself in nature, staring wistfully at trees and roadways since leaving public office, has been showered with media attention in recent months, and his memoir earned him over $2 million. 
Well, Rosenstein, in response, said, now the former director is a partisan pundit, selling books and earning speaking fees while speculating about the strength of my character and the fate of my immortal soul. That is disappointing. Speculating about souls is not a job for police and prosecutors. Generally, we base our opinions on eyewitness testimony, end quote. And although Mr. Rosenstein emphasized that he did not dislike and even admired Comey in the past, he asserted that the former FBI head's handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation in 2016 was a grievous and defining professional error. The clearest mistake was the director's decision to hold a press conference about an open case reveal his recommendation and discuss details about the investigation without the consent of the prosecutors and the attorney general. He went on to say then he chose to send a letter to the Congress on the eve of the election stating that one of the candidates was under criminal investigation, expecting it to be released immediately to the public. Comey later said he felt compelled to hold the dramatic July 2016 news conference in which he said that no reasonable prosecutor would charge Clinton, even though... He said she had been extremely careless in handling classified information. Well, it goes on. Mr. Rosenstein emphasized Trump did not tell me what reasons to put in my memo. The president repeatedly had suggested that Comey's refusal to acknowledge publicly as he had privately that Trump was not under investigation ultimately played a role in his termination. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, back in March, Nancy Pelosi introduced the so-called Equality Act, a bill that would add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under federal civil rights law. Well, what difference will it make in terms of its impact on the average American? That's what we'll address here in a moment. Where the original Civil Rights Act of 1964 furthered equality by ensuring that African-Americans, such as myself, had equal access to public accommodations and material goods, the Equality Act would further... um, inequality by penalizing everyday Americans for their beliefs about marriage and biological sex. Similar sexual orientation and gender identity laws at state and local uh, levels have already been used in this way. And here are some, uh, I appreciate this uh, provided by the Heritage Foundation, some of the uh, groups who would be impacted directly by the Equality Act, which is expected to be voted on in the House sometime this week. Well, for employers and workers, the Equality Act would force employers and workers to conform to new sexual norms or else lose their business or their jobs. And that's how we've seen it played out in uh, some states and localities as well. Um, This is already happening on the state and local level. The most high-profile example involves the Colorado baker, Jack Phillips, whose case went all the way to the Supreme Court after the Colorado Civil Rights Commission accused him of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation when he declined to create a custom cake for a same-sex wedding. He's not the only victim. Other cases involving disagreement over the meaning of marriage feature uh, florists, bakers, photographers, wedding venue owners, videographers, web designers, calligraphers, and public servants. Now citizens are being punished for their views on biological sex. Well, shortly after the Supreme Court ruling, Jack Phillips found found himself in court again after an uh, activist attorney who identifies as transgender requested that Masterpiece Cake Shop create a gender transition celebration cake. Uh, After the Colorado Civil Rights Commission found probable cause that Phillips had discriminated on the basis of gender identity, he sued the commission for targeting him uh, for his Christian beliefs, and ultimately the commission dropped the case, and Phillips agreed to drop his own lawsuit against the agency. 
Well, even when victims win legal battles like Jack Phillips, conflicts like these have a chilling effect. They uh, discourage people from opening new businesses or entering into certain fields entirely. Well, a federal sexual orientation and gender identity law would preclude to compromise of any kind on disagreement about marriage and sexuality. Take Peter Vlaming. This high school French teacher was dismissed under the school's anti-discrimination policy after he refused to comply with administrators' orders to use a female student's preferred masculine pronouns. Flaming had tried to accommodate the student by avoiding pronouns, al- uh, pronouns rather, altogether and addressing the student by their preferred masculine name. But this was deemed insufficient by the school board. The Equality Act would increase conflicts like these and put people out of work for their beliefs. And we've seen many other examples. And then what impact would it have on medical professionals? Well, the Equality Act would force hospitals and insurers to provide and pay for these therapies against any moral or medical objection. It would politicize medicine by forcing professionals to act against their best medical judgment and provide transition-affirming therapies, untested in many cases, particularly on young people. Well, the fight is already here. Catholic hospitals in California and New Jersey have been sued for declining to perform um, hysterectomies on otherwise healthy women who want to become male. A third Catholic hospital in Washington settled out of court when the ACLU sued them for declining to perform a double mastectomy on a gender dysphoric 16-year-old girl. Well, these cases would multiply under the Equality Act. The bill would prioritize medicine by forcing doctors, or rather politicize medicine, by forcing doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals to offer drastic procedures not in view of um, new scientific discoveries, but by ideolo- uh, ideological fiat. And then what about parents and children? Well, this politicization of medicine would ultimately harm families by normalizing hormonal and surgical interventions for gender dysphoric children, as well as ideological education in schools and other public venues. 80 to 90 percent of children with gender dysphoria no longer feel distressed by their bodies after puberty. Yet activists continue to push their own radical protocol Social uh, transition as young as as four, puberty blocking drugs as young as nine, cross sex hormones as young as 14 and surgery by 18 or in some cases even younger. Well, the protocol could become mandatory in the future. The latest issue of the American Journal of Bioethics includes an article that argues that states should overrule the parents of gender dysphoric children who do not consent to give them puberty blocking drugs by silencing the scientific debate of Transgender affirming therapies through the politicization of medicine, the Equality Act would further normalize this radical protocol and create an expectation that parents comply. In fact, parents in Ohio lost custody of their 17-year-old daughter because they declined to put her on testosterone supplements. It's uh, no secret that radical gender ideology has found its way into our schools. Um, The bill would stigmatize any and all opposition to such indoctrination. The Equality Act would put parental rights uh, to make decisions about their children's medical treatment and education at risk. And what about women? Well, the Equality Act would ultimately lead to the erasure of women by dismantling sex-specific facilities, sports, and other female-only spaces. Sexual orientation and gender identity laws would open up sex-specific facilities like bathrooms, locker rooms to members of the opposite sex. Um, And for those who would pretend, uh, I suppose, and the possibility of sexual assault. For example, Pasha Thomas, 
uh, was forced to remove her child from school after a male classmate assaulted her five-year-old daughter in the girl's restroom. The boy had access to the girl's restroom because the school's policy grants students access to private facilities on the basis of self-identified gender identity. Well, administrators refused to change the policy despite Thomas' complaints. Federal authorities are now investigating the incident. Well, the concern with these policies is that predators will take advantage of the new law to gain access to victims. Policies like these make women less likely to report incidents and law enforcement less likely to get involved for fear of being accused of discrimination. Well, these policies also leave women at a disadvantage in sex-specific sports and other activities. Two biological males who identify and compete as women easily took first and second place at the Connecticut State Track Championships. Selena Soule, a female runner, lost the race and the chance to be scouted by college coaches and selected for athletic scholarship. We all know the outcome of the race before it even starts, she said. It's demoralizing. Females of all ages can expect to lose more and more opportunities like these to biological males who have a natural advantage in sports and physical activities. The Equality Act would defeat the entire purpose of Title X, or rather Title IX, which was meant to ensure that women, biological women, would have the same opportunities as men, including in sports, and would leave women vulnerable to sexual assault. And what about nonprofits and um, and volunteers? What impact would the Equality Act likely have for them? Well, it would also hurt charities, volunteers, and populations they serve. State and local sexual orientation and gender identity laws have shut down numerous faith-based adoption and foster care agencies across the country in Philadelphia, New York, Illinois, California, Massachusetts, the District of Columbia. Now, these states treated the belief that children do best with both a mother and a father as discriminatory, and kids are the ones who are paying the price. With 438,000 children languishing in foster care, Nationwide, we need more agencies working to help kids find homes rather than fewer. Now, charities that admit to the reality of biological sex are under attack, too. In Anchorage, Alaska, a biological male twice tried to gain access to the city's downtown Hope Center, a shelter for homeless, abused and trafficked women. In response, the individual sued the center for alleged gender identity discrimination. A federal sexual orientation and gender identity law would force any charity to open up private facilities, including sex-specific bathrooms, showers, and sleeping areas to members of the opposite sex. The Equality Act would cost our country countless charitable organizations, which means fewer institutions would be available to serve populations in need. The Equality Act actually furthers inequality, especially for women and girls, by punishing anyone who does not affirm a single viewpoint of marriage and biological sex. A federal sexual orientation and gender identity law would empower the government to interfere in how regular Americans think, speak, and act at home, at school, at work, at play. Any bill promoting this authoritarianism is a danger to our freedom. So what should Congress do? Well, Congress should honor the constitutional freedoms of all Americans to think, work, and live according to their beliefs on marriage and biological sex. The legislation wrongly conflates disagreement on those issues with discrimination. All people should be treated with dignity and respect, and powerful uh, market and cultural forces are deterring discrimination against anyone simply because they identify as gay or transgender. State laws um, have punished nonconformity to cultural orthodoxy. Federal laws should not exacerbate social conflict by doing the same. Anti-discrimination laws are supposed to be shields from Um, invidious discrimination, not swords to punish nonconformity. 
Our laws should honor the freedom to hold different beliefs in order to protect true diversity and promote tolerance. On the contrary, the Equality Act does neither. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the Equality Act, and it's also being argued, Tony uh, Perkins points out in his latest column in the Daily Signal, um, that the Equality Act would also promote abortion. And he writes, this isn't just the most extreme um, a bill ever written. This is a one-stop shopping for the worst uh, agenda uh, that the left has to offer, including, we've discovered, the largest expansion of taxpayer-funded abortion this country has ever seen. Now, the connection here, he goes on to explain. He says the Equality Act doesn't just torch religious freedom and the First Amendment. It guts every pro-life protection ever passed into law. On the Hill, the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus is just one of the groups frantically trying to warn members. Now that the text of the bill has been released, staffers have had time to comb the language for landmines. And based on what their um, the team has seen, there's a field of them. He goes on to write, believe it or not, Democrats didn't just expand the meaning of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include sexual orientation and gender identity. They've also defined it to mean pregnancy, childbirth or related medical condition. In other words, under the terms of this proposal, pregnancy, childbirth or a related medical condition shall not receive less favorable treatment than any other physical condition. Under this big new umbrella of discrimination, any American who doesn't want to fund, offer, perform or participate an abortion on demand will have no real choice. They can conform or they can be punished. If you thought the Obamacare mandate was bad, the Equality Act will look like a Sunday picnic by comparison. Taxpayers will be openly funding the culture of death all across America. Every wall that's been built between abortion and the government would come crashing down, including the Hyde Amendment, the pro-conscience Weldon Amendment, and several international barriers that keep our country from exporting abortion. And, sen- and since the left has made such a... St- a um made sure, rather, to strip out any religious liberty protections under the Equality Act. Faith-based hospitals and medical staff could find themselves completely defenseless against a sex discrimination claim for refusing to perform or offer abortions, which uh, they argue, supporters argue, uh, gives a related medical condition to pregnancy less favorable treatment than other physical conditions. Well, state laws could be um, just as vulnerable in court where activist judges are all too eager to expand abortion. Make no mistake, H.R. 5, which is the Equality Act, isn't just a threat to freedom, business, privacy, education, sports and faith. There is a threat to innocent human life. Now, Tony Perkins, writing for the Washington Update, points out that there's language um, having to do uh, with abortion as well. And then Liberty Council uh, emphasizes how the Equality Act guts religious freedom, uh, writing that H.R. 5 is the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. House and S. 788 in the Senate misnamed the Equality Act, takes the unprecedented step of eliminating the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 as a claim or defense to the application of many uh, federal laws. This bill drastically alters religious freedom in all cases, not just those involving LGBT. For example, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 permits houses of worship to make employment decisions based on religion. This recognizes the essential right for houses of worship to employ those who align with their religious doctrine. The Equality Act would abolish this fundamental right. Catholic and 
Uh, Protestant churches uh, could be forced to hire atheists. If a synagogue preferred a Jew over a Muslim, it would not be able to raise the RIFRA or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a claim of defense. RIFRA is a federal law that protects religious freedom. Specifically, it prohibits any agency, department or official of the United States or any state um, from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion. Even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, expect that uh, the government may obtain a person's um, uh, exercise of religion only if it demonstrates that application of burden to the person. However, H.R. 5 clearly forbids raising the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a claim or defense to the application of the Equality Act and many other federal laws that would be amended by this bill. This Equality Act extends the federal protections that include sexual orientation, gender identity and pregnancy, i.e. abortion. H.R. 5 applies to employment, housing, rental, public accommodation, and more. In addition, the terms sexual orientation and gender identity will be defined to mean pregnancy, childbirth, or a related medical condition. In other words, under the terms of this bill, pregnancy, childbirth, or a related medical condition shall not receive less favorable treatment than any other physical condition. The Equality Act also expands the definition of public accommodations accommodations rather, to include places or establishments that provide exhibitions, recreation, exercise, amusements, gatherings or displays, goods, services or programs, and transportation services. Well, after passing the House Judiciary Committee recently, the Equality Act will now go to the House and then uh, be sent to the Senate where the bill number is S-788. The so-called Equality Act eviscerates freedom in general and religious freedom in particular. Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, points out, going on to say it is the most serious threat to life and liberty to ever be proposed in Congress. This bill needs to be stripped in this or stopped in the Senate. If this bill becomes law, the consequences are staggering. So, again, this is the Equality Act. It's expected to be voted on in the House um, this week, and then it will move over to the uh, to the Senate, presumably. Well, if you think the Supreme Court's conservative majority won't touch well-established legal precedent, think again. In fact, some on the left are alarmed for Roe versus Wade because the Supreme Court conservatives overturned another unrelated 40-year-old precedent. Now, what happens in the court from time to time, so it's not all that surprising, but given the makeup of the court, panic has set in. In a 5-4 ruling on Monday, the court overturned a 40-year-old precedent in a low-profile sovereign immunity case, a move liberals see as a potential indication that the precedent set by Roe v. Wade could be under a, under a threat. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority, stare decisis does not compel continued adherence to this erroneous precedent, referring to the principle of legal precedent. He did not suggest that there was an urgent issue or fundamental problem with existing doctrine, simply that it was wrong. Justice Stephen Breyer, in a dissent from the court's liberal justices, quoted from a high-profile abortion case and asked which cases the court will overrule next. It is one thing to overrule a case when it differs um, or defies practical workability, when related principles of law have so far developed as to uh, have left the old rule no more than a remnant of abandoned doctrine, or when facts have so changed or come to be seen so differently as to have robbed the old rule of significant application or justification. 
Breyer wrote, quoting from uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the landmark 92 case that upheld the constitutionality of abortion. He went on to write, it is far more dangerous to overrule a decision only because five members of a later court come to agree with earlier dissenters on the difficult legal question. Today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overturn next or overrule next. The case Monday overturned a 1979 ruling that said there was no blanket constitutional immunity for states and each other's court systems. Thomas and the conservatives said there is such immunity and that states could not be hauled involuntarily before each other's courts. Well, justices of the Supreme Court of the United States poses for um, a, a question for future decisions. Well, during the two most recent Supreme Court to confirmation hearing, Justices uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh each pledged to defend precedent and declared that the landmark 73 decision, Roe versus Wade, qualified as such. Gorsuch told Democratic Senator Dick Durbin during his hearing in 2017 that the Supreme Court of the United States has held in Roe versus Wade that a fetus is not a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment, referring to the amendment that pertains to due process of law. Do you accept that? Durbin asked at the time. That's the law of the land, Gorsuch said. I accept the law of the land. Uh, Senator, yes. Well, Kavanaugh called Roe important precedent during his confirmation in 2018, but acknowledged that the court can always overrule, as was the case in this unrelated case earlier this week that has um, set off alarm bells uh, around the country for those who support the uh, Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton decisions. Now, it's not unprecedented for the Supreme Court to overturn precedent, but in this particular climate, the panic is that uh, overturning a precedent as uh, monumental as uh, Roe versus Wade could be in the sights of conservatives. Now, they don't just decide we're going to take up this case. Of course, there has to be a case that makes its way uh, through the lower courts, uh, is uh, makes its way to the Supreme Court. They determine whether or not they are prepared to hear the case and so on. So it's not just a matter of Supreme Court justices deciding they're going to take on the issue of Roe versus Wade. But this certainly does uh, suggest to those who are concerned about the conservative majority open up the possibility that they are prepared to overturn precedent if they um, disagree with it or find that the original decision was just simply wrong. So we'll continue to follow that uh, as it continues to be developed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Jeremy Treat. Seek first. Um, how the kingdom of God changes everything. But first, news and traffic. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest makes the point that the key to a successful and fulfilling life is finding out what matters most and then building your whole life around it. So what does matter most? Well, in his book, Seek First, pastor and author Jeremy Treat is a, offers a vision of following Jesus that shapes and enhances all of life, offering an eternal perspective, a lasting purpose, and an unshakable identity. It is the only thing worth building your life around. Well, Dr. Jeremy Treat is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality Church in L.A., um, in uh, California and adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. He is the award-winning author of The Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. He joins us today to talk about his uh, book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, the kingdom of God is a phrase that we so often use, and certainly Jesus did as well. But I wonder how much we uh, understand uh, what it means. You opened the book with the uh, quote that I offered a moment ago. You said the key to life is finding out what matters most and building your life around it. In an age of distraction, however, focusing on what matters most feels impossible. But if we look at the words of Jesus, it's, well, it's not only possible, but it's uh, uh, it's something that he's calling us to. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I remember the first time I heard a preacher say, what's the number one thing that Jesus talked about throughout his life? And growing up in the church, I thought I had the answer for that. I thought, you know, it must be either the cross or heaven or love or something like that. And when the preacher said, the number one thing that Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God, um, it totally shook me that all of a sudden I realized that this is the number one thing that he talked about. It's the one thing that he said, seek first about. And and it really didn't play out in my life and the way that I thought about God and the way that I, I thought about what it means to be a Christian or how to live in this world. And so it really set me on a journey of, of trying to understand, okay, if that's what matters most, then what is the kingdom of God and how do I build my life around it? Mm. You make the point that Jesus gave his followers many commands, but there was only one thing he said to seek first. Again, reminding us of how important this was to Jesus and that he wanted to convey that truth to us. Yeah, I mean, and and what I love about that is he said that to his disciples in the context of them asking really practical day-to-day questions of what am I going to eat, what am I going to wear, all of humanity, we're not that different, right? We go day to day, we have deep longings, but we also are trying to connect those to practical questions in life. And so I just love that the context for that wasn't a theology classroom. Uh, It's Jesus talking to his disciples, teaching them how to follow him, and giving them this vision of the kingdom of God that shapes our hearts, it shapes our souls, it shapes our schedules and our lives throughout the day. Um, And Jesus called them to that, and then he taught them every day. Yeah, you point out that in in Jesus saying we should seek first the kingdom, that it doesn't have to compete with our work, our hobbies, relationships, and other important Mm -hmm. aspects. These things will be added. So it's not an either or. It's a a matter of Mm -hmm. order and priority. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I think is so powerful about this message of the kingdom is that we often think that things in our life like work or hobbies or even just practical things like eating a meal, uh, we think that those compete with our time with God, that God is only pleased with us, God only cares about when we're reading our Bibles or praying or going to church. But the vision of the kingdom is this idea of Christ's comprehensive reign, that he rules over all, over every aspect of our life. And that means it infuses meaning into the day-to-day activities that we're partaking in, whether that's working or eating a meal or going for a jog that God cares about all of those, and it tears down these categories of sacred and secular that so often we slip into and have a a much less holistic perspective on what it means to live for God. Now, you asked the question, and I think rightly so, because while the phrase is familiar, perhaps understanding what it means might be less so. What is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus referring to? Yeah, so I try to give a short eight-word definition of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And so at the heart of that is that it's about God, and that might uh, 
that might sound obvious that the kingdom of God is centered on God, but I think a lot of the time the way that people use the language of the kingdom is you end up having a kingdom without a king. And some people talk about it as if it's just this utopian society, but it's, it doesn't have God at the center of it. So it, it begins with the reign of God, but then it's a reconciling reign. It's a saving reign. And so God redeems us into his kingdom and and then he, where he reigns, that's over a place. And so the vision of Scripture is that the blessings of God's reign would go to the ends of the earth. And so it's this idea of Christ reigning through his disciples over a new creation. It's not a it's not a vision of kind of taking people away from earth and taking them to heaven. It's heaven and earth coming together where Christ reigns over all. You write that uh, your aim in this book is not only to help you understand the kingdom of God, but to for us to your readers to experience it. And that's uh, precisely what Jesus was calling us to, uh, not only understanding, uh, having an intellectual understanding of what the kingdom is, but to experience that in relationship. Yeah, I mean, the kingdom comes in power. And, and one of the ways to think about the coming of the kingdom is that it's, it's heaven breaking in. It's heaven breaking in on a Sunday morning where we gather as a church right off Sunset Boulevard. It's heaven breaking in in my neighborhood when I'm having conversations with my neighbor. It's heaven breaking in around the dinner table with my family. And so this idea of experiencing the power of the kingdom, the kingdom is not just a future vision of of what the world will be when Christ returns. It's God's reign breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's going to come in power. It's going to be counterintuitive. It's going to be different than the ways of the world, but it's life-changing. Uh, it's, it's being in the presence of the King himself. Well, that sounds so appealing to anyone who is a follower of Christ. And one of the goals of your book is to rearrange, help us to rearrange life around what matters most. Because as you point out at the very beginning, the key to life is finding out the answer to that question, what matters most, and then uh, pursuing it with, uh, with all that we have, building our life around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people like the idea of kind of figuring out your priorities in life, but God is not just on the priority list. He's over the whole thing. And so when we recognize that that God is of utmost importance, I mean, to put it simply, we're called to put God first and then build everything around that. It's It's one thing to be able to say, well, God's most important, and then and then family, and then and kind of go down the line. But it's another thing to actually align your schedule, your money, your energy, your passion around your very priorities, and that's what takes a lot of discipline um, and humility of learning from the Lord through the Scriptures, being shaped by the Holy Spirit over time. Mm-hmm be able to actually align your life around around your priorities. And I appreciate your uh, reminding us that the Holy Spirit is at work in us in this effort to uh, to do what Christ calls us to and to live that fullness that he intends for us. Yeah, I mean, the, I really believe that the, the kingdom of God is not ultimately the outcome of human effort, mm-hmm. of our best abilities to make the world a better place. No, it's, we, don't, we don't build the kingdom of God. We receive the kingdom of God. And God draws us into that work. And he does so by empowering us with his spirit to, to take part, to participate in the work that he's doing. And so 
all the power is with him, but through our faith in him and trust in him, he draws us into that work and uses us in it. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Jeremy Treat. He's the author of uh, the book we're talking about, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but do need to take this quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Treat. Uh, Dr. Treat is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality LA, a thriving church in Los Angeles and an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. He's the award-winning author of The Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. We're talking today about his latest book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. One of the things that you write about is the fact that we all live according to stories. Uh, But it's not the small stories that shape us most. We all long to see our lives as part of a bigger story. We're all in search of a master narrative, a comprehensive story that answers the big questions like, why are we here? What's wrong? What's the remedy? And how will it end? Talk about the master narrative that helps us to understand the kingdom of God, our place in it, and God's call to us. Yeah, I think that... uh we do all live by these stories, and oftentimes we don't really think about it. We take it for granted. And the story that most of us live by in our culture today is a secular narrative that culminates in individual happiness. And we kind of build our lives around that narrative. But the scriptures give us a really different narrative. It's the story of the kingdom of God. And then when Jesus said his, the first words out of his mouth, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, that's story language. That's plot language. And so the story of the kingdom goes all the way back to the garden. And God's design from the beginning is that he would rule over all of creation and that his people would rejoice under his rule. All of creation would flourish under his rule. Sin, of course, then, is not only rebellion against God, but it, it shatters the goodness of God's creation. And so God's promise of grace then isn't just to save sinners out of creation, but to renew creation. And so you see that through Israel, it ultimately culminates in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, who comes as the king and who is reclaiming creation as his kingdom. And so it's this comprehensive rule that comes through Christ, who reigns in a surprising way. The king comes as a servant, the shepherd laid down his life as the lamb. And so our hope, our ultimate future hope, is in the fullness of the kingdom of God, which will be a new creation. But the kingdom has already come in Christ. And so that's the story, this kingdom story that makes sense of our lives today, that helps us understand the hardship that we experience and the hope that we have in Christ. Well, no kingdom exists without a, a king. And despite the story that you give from 1934, when the world was uh, Uh, under the threat of a global war, and Hungary was swept into Germany's influence, uh, referring to itself as a kingdom but had no king. Talk about the unmatchable king that uh, oversees this kingdom that we're talking about. Yeah, well, this is where if people get confused about, well, what do you mean by the kingdom of God or this or that, I want to constantly come back to Christ the King that he is the the perfect embodiment of the kingdom. And if people say, well, what does it look like in daily life? Or how how do I think of that? I say, 
Think of Jesus forgiving someone's sins. That's the kingdom of God. Think of Jesus healing someone of disease. That's the kingdom of God. Think of Jesus drawing in the outcasts. That's the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, it all centers on Christ the King. That's really what shapes the kingdom. Uh, He's the one that we focus on as the King. And yes, if you lose the focus on the King, then your understanding of the kingdom will go awry. In your chapter on the majestic and the mundane, you uh, remind us of Stephen Hawking, who was devoted to uh, pushing the boundaries of science. He even sought uh, nothing less than the theory of everything. And while his theory of everything may not explain, uh, may explain some things, it doesn't explain the why of life. But there is a place uh, where we can turn for those answers. Talk a bit about that chapter and the majestic and as opposed to the mundane, which is most of what life is like for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, far too often Christians look to Jesus as the Lord of their spiritual life. They they compartmentalize life where here's my hobbies and here's my work and then here's this religious compartment and Jesus fits into the religious compartment. But when you read the scriptures, it's clear that you can't relegate Jesus to the religious compartment, that he's the king who rules over all. Jesus didn't leave his throne and come down to the cross so that he could be Lord of our spiritual life. He claims all. And so that means it's this vision of Christ's reign over all of life. But that that puts, yeah, as the title of the chapter suggests, it puts majesty in the mundane. It's not just kind of the spiritual highs of an incredible worship service. It's your daily routines. It's the people that you interact with throughout the day. It's pausing uh, before you eat and reminding that all you have is a gift from God. It's, it's, it's seeing God in the everyday rhythms of life and recognizing the ordinary means of grace as the way of God transforms us and uses us in this world. Your book is divided into three sections. The first is Kingdom Perspective, and we've been talking for the most part uh, from that section. Then it moves on to Kingdom Purpose and then Kingdom People. Let's talk about the purpose of the kingdom and our place in it in following uh, Jesus, and that it implies that we're not individuals isolated from others, but we are a part of a larger community. Talk a bit about Kingdom Purpose. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we live in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And so what, what's easy for us to do um, is, is to take these themes of the scriptures, uh, say even like discipleship, and, and to just individualize them. And when we think of praying and reading scripture um, and fasting, maybe meditation or silence, we think of all of those things individually, whereas in the scriptures, um, the, the basis, the default for all of those is much more communal. And God loves us as individuals, but not in an individualistic way. We come before our Father as children who gather together with Him. And so the, the idea of the kingdom reminds us that community is at the heart of all of this. The church really is the community of the King. And so it teaches us to think of uh, whether it's following Jesus as disciples or seeking justice, uh, anything that we do of, of remembering that we are a part of a community, we're a part of a family, where not only is God our Father, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We're told by Jesus himself in the Word that we are 
in this world, but we are not of it. We are kingdom people. And in the last segment of your book, you uh, you write about uh, us, believers in Jesus, who are kingdom people, sons and daughters, sojourners and exiles, saints and sinners. Who are these kingdom people? Yeah, well, I think this is it's a really timely message for Christians, at least in America today, because there's a long time in America where to be a Christian was the mainstream. That was the norm. And you expected um, other people to agree with you. And our, our society has changed. It's shifted fast. Uh, and what we're experiencing now is, uh, I would say, not an obstacle, but it's an opportunity mm-hmm. for the church to understand its true nature as exiles, as sojourners who are not home yet. And so we need to recognize that our, our citizenship in the kingdom of God is primary and ultimate and shapes our citizenship in whatever city or country we live in. And so we shouldn't expect uh, people who aren't following Jesus as Lord to agree with us on everything. We need to remember that we have a distinct ethic and unique beliefs that are all shaped by following Jesus. Um, We tend to want to when difficulty comes, because we in this country have lived in an exceptional period in which we've had very little conflict or resistance of any kind. We're now reflecting more of what the body of Christ experiences throughout most of the world, at least outside of the Western world. Um, but we are also called to be, as you write, uh, ambassadors of the king. So we are not um, we're not free to retreat, but we are called to be engaged in culture for the glory of God and for the kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's an aspect of the faith that we have to protect and we have to make sure that we're a distinct community but we're also sent out as salt and light. And uh, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, uh, seeking reconciliation, seeking the peace of the city that the Lord has called us to. And we're in a battle. And, and it's ultimately Christ who is the victor in that battle. But he calls us into it to witness to him, uh, to, to proclaim the gospel, to stand on the foundation of the word of God. And so we need to recognize the battle that we're in. I mean, I've, I've heard it said that the, the first way to lose a battle is to, real, is to not realize that you're in one. And so we need to know that this is a battle and that the Lord is advancing his kingdom. But at the same time, uh, he does so in surprising ways. We shouldn't have a triumphalistic attitude, but rather recognize that uh, the kingdom was established through the cross. And so the Lord is going to advance his kingdom through suffering and service through a people who recognize the power of sacrifice and who, in reflecting the very Messiah that we follow, lay down our lives for others and show, the, and show love to others, even when they don't love us in return. The book is titled Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. And it certainly begins by changing us when we understand it and seek first his kingdom. Dr. Treat, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is um, published by Zondervan, Seek First. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, California's population is growing more slowly, which is an odd way to put it, growing more slowly. Uh, then expect it, making it uh, increasingly likely that they're going to lose at least one congressional seat in 2020 and maybe more. Right now, the current numbers 
Uh, They're coming in look very much like California is on track to lose a seat. That's according to Public Policy Institute of California research fellow Eric McGee speaking to the Sacramento Bee. Now, McGee's assessment came after the state released its latest demographic uh, report on May 1st. The report produced by the California Department of Finance Estimates that California added 186,807 residents in 2018, a growth rate of 0.47 percent. That's the slowest in the state's history, the department noted, which it attributed to a significant decline in births, as well as lower student enrollment and a rise in deaths as California's baby boomers continue to age. Now, there's also a mass exit from the state, although they didn't mention that, but that could play a role. Well, that raises the stakes for the 2020 census even higher. The Census Bureau is going to reapportion the country's 435 U.S. House seats in 2021 based on the population numbers uh, it tallies next year. It would be um, uh, then up to the state's independent redistricting commission to draw the new congressional district's uh, lines for the apportioned seat. Well, California is already on um, edge about the census. Given the state's large proportion of people considered hard to count, it's not going to take much, uh, McGee went on to say. A lot of those things uh, sit on the knife's edge, and they depend on uh, not just how much California has grown, but how much other states have grown um, as well. Well, as it stands, California is not on the low end of the growth compared to the rest of the country. It's just not on the high end either. Still, that's a marked difference with the uh, breakneck pace uh, of growth that the state experienced in the 20th century. Between 1900 and 1950, California's population grew more than 500 percent from less than 2 million people to 10 million, according to this same study. In the second half of the century, it nearly tripled. Well, that led to large jumps in political representation in Congress and certainly influence. In 1930, California gained nine new congressional seats, according to the U.S. House of Representatives Office of Historian. The state's growth rate has slowed over the past two decades, however. Now other states like Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Colorado are growing at a faster clip. California is still home to more people than any other state with a population that now stands at 39.9 million. But for the first time ever, it didn't gain a congressional seat after the 2010 census, holding steady at its 53 districts. And now California is poised for another historic first, losing a congressional seat. Well, like McGee, the political data analysis website uh, Polydata is forecasting the state will lose at least one seat. So is Claremont McKenna College's Rose Institute of State and Local Government, which published the report last uh, month predicting a congressional seat is most likely to be subtracted from the parts of Los Angeles County that have been their population decline in recent years. Well, four districts in downtown and east Los Angeles, the 27th, the 32nd, 38th, and 40th, appear to be most at risk of becoming the district California loses in 2021. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there, downsizing its influence, at least by uh, by one. And the decision by Denver voters last week to decriminalize psychedelic mushrooms marked a significant shift in the debate over legalizing illegal drugs, which up to this point revolved entirely around marijuana. Well, Denver in Colorado becomes the first major American city to decriminalize Another controlled substance after 21 states, including Colorado and Oregon, either decriminalized, legalized or allowed small amounts of marijuana, according to the National Conference of State Legislators. Well, drug policy experts disagree on whether the results of the Denver referendum on psychedelic mushrooms mark a domino for more legalization efforts, however. 
uh, says Kevin Sabat, a senior advisor in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy under President Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. The movement was never about marijuana. It was always about legalizing all drugs. I don't want to be uh, to put people in prison for pot, but I don't want to commercialize marijuana, he said. Well, psychedelic or uh, uh, these mushrooms, we'll just put it at that, sometimes called magic mushrooms or hallucinogens. Uh, that can cause panic attacks and psychoses, according to the Drug Enforcement Administration. Other side effects include nausea and vomiting, muscle weakness, lack of coordination, and an overdose may result in death. Well, this particular mushroom, a naturally occurring psychedelic compound, is produced by more than 200 species of mushrooms. Well, Sabat, president of the group called Smart Approaches to Marijuana, is also director of the Drug Policy Institute at the University of Florida, where he's an assistant professor in the College of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry. Big Tobacco is already involved in marijuana. I'm not surprised to see efforts to decriminalize other drugs, he said. Mushrooms are the next easiest argument. It's low-hanging fruit. They're not uh, going to uh, call for legalizing crack cocaine now, but they're not uh, going to stop with mushrooms in Denver either. So the slippery slope continues. Again, we're just talking about Denver, Colorado, but it starts somewhere and continues. Meanwhile, back at home, Senate Republicans ended their week-long walkout uh, and returned to the Oregon Capitol after the governor and Democratic leaders agreed to major concessions on some of the most high-profile bills this session. Well, Democrats scrapped uh, bills on gun control and vaccines in exchange for Republicans' return to the Senate. Republicans returned and the chamber was able to approve the one billion dollar per year school funding tax by 18 to 11 vote. It previously passed the House and now heads to Governor Kate Brown for her signature. It would raise one billion dollars per year through a half percent tax on Oregon's wealthiest businesses via a 0.57 percent tax on gross receipts for businesses with a million dollars or more in sales. The agreement to move forward with the education tax vote marks a huge win for the Republican minority, uh, which is sort of a super minority, which has remained largely powerless this session against a Democratic governor and legislative supermajority. Well, the vaccine measure, which is uh, already approved by the House, would have ended families' ability to opt out of school vaccination requirements for personal, psychological or religious reasons. If passed, Oregon would have... Um, had one of the strongest vaccine laws in the country at a time when the nation, uh, the nation's measles count has uh, hit its highest in decades. Well, this bill was about saving lives, protecting children, ensuring our shared immunity from dangerous and preventable diseases. Representative Sherry Helt, the Republican from Bend behind the vaccine proposal, said it's disappointing that once again the loudest, most extreme voices in our politics prevailed and the sensible center and thoughtful policy making uh, lost. Well, they weren't the loudest and most vocal. They were the smallest group that wielded some power by simply refusing to participate. Senate Majority Leader Jenny Burdick confirmed that Governor Kate Brown was behind the agreement, which will also quash a gun control package that would have allowed businesses to raise the purchasing age to 21 and require gun owners to safely store their weapons. Well, Burdick, uh, who sponsored the proposal, said the trade-off was the right thing to do, but it was not my idea. She said she will still work on gun reform in the future. Senate President Peter Courtney said the vaccine and gun measures, those were bills that we worked on and believed in, but it's just uh, isn't going to happen, and that's the way it goes. Well, the Democrat added, we had a crisis of government shutdown on us. It could uh, have gone on and on and on. It could have involved the 
state police, it would have been a nightmare. Well, nightmare. Senate Republicans walked out on the 6th of May to delay a vote on the multi-billion dollar school funding. They said they refused to vote on any new funding for education without a solution to the state's public pension debt. Well, the protest occurred the week of a massive statewide teacher walkout over classroom funding. Oregon pays far less per student compared to other states, despite the fact that school funding takes up the largest portion of the state budget. Senate Minority Leader Herman um, Berchiger Jr. refused to uh, provide details of the agreement, but he hinted that negotiations may not be over, saying he didn't want to say anything that would inflame those conversations. There's a lot of conversation going on in many different items, he said. Well, education has been a major budgetary and legislative priority for Democrats this session. Opponents said the tax will be passed on to consumers and that the state shouldn't increase funding without first addressing Oregon's spiraling pension debt, which they have yet to do. Legislative leaders unveiled a pension plan last week that would shield employers from the impact of upcoming interest rate hikes, though it garnered significant opposition from unions. So, um... Uh, The education bill did pass in the Senate. The Republicans are back and the legislative session continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, want to remind you that Better Together is the program for you. That is, of course, if you're a woman. In fact, it's TBN's First program that's produced by women for women. You can hear it weekdays or watch it weekdays here in the Portland metro area, 1030 a.m. Pacific time. You can download the TBN app or go to visit the bettertogether.tv site and register to watch any time. So you have the freedom and flexibility to watch it uh, in, in, in real time or to uh, go back and see episodes that may appeal specifically to you. Today's uh, focus was on adopting the heart of God and the virtue of adoption and how it uh, relates so much to what we as women who are followers of Christ have experienced and how we can adopt others both in the natural and spiritually. And then tomorrow um, we're going to they're going to talk about rather um, how caregivers can find rest. Women are so often nurturers and it can be an exhausting enterprise. We're going to talk or they're going to talk about, I say we because I feel like I'm a part of that conversation, but they're going to talk about how to be um, caregivers. That's Better Together, TBN's program for women. Again, three ways to watch. 10.30 a.m. Pacific time. You can download the TBN app or visit better or bettertogether.tv and register to watch anytime. Let's not do life alone because we do it better when we're together. TBN's new program. Well, I mentioned last Friday that the uh, movie on... Uh, Tolkien was coming into theaters on Friday. Well, the new biographical drama, we have it confirmed. Paul Batura writes about it, about the early and challenging life of the legendary author and English professor, John Ronald Rule Tolkien, uh, better known as J.R.R. Tolkien, in case you wondered what those initials stood for, opened in theaters this weekend. The Disney film, two years in the making, promised to uh, draw fans and followers of the literary giant whose works have inspired... um, The record-breaking Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, uh, that franchise, which to date has grossed nearly $3 billion worldwide. And wouldn't he be surprised? Students of Tolkien, uh, anyone else who understands and appreciates the formative and foundational importance of faith in an individual's life, will be sorely disappointed, Paul Batura points out. The movie sidesteps and understates the role of his uh, Christian faith 
in his personal and professional development. What a disappointment, but I guess not so much of a surprise. So why would a motion picture that tells a person's life story ignore the very hinge on which the individual's whole life swung? Well, that's always the question in uh, when Hollywood takes on a luminary like Tolkien. Well, according to the film's director, religion is so internal, it's difficult to visualize. It's like watching an encyclopedia. Well, no, he lived out his faith in ways that were expressed in the work that he did. He also explained that attempts to portray Tolkien's faith fell flat, even suggesting those who saw scenes attempting to tell his spiritual side found the the, uh, uh, depictions boring. In the end, those parts of the movie didn't make the final cut. Well, you wonder who wrote it. Uh, Was it someone who understands faith and the transformative and influential role that it plays in the life of a believer? Well, we don't know the answers to all of those questions, but it is disappointing Uh, Tolkien's life can no more be explained without his Christian faith and the history and miracle of America can be told and understood absent the influence and faith of the founding, um, uh, the framers of the Constitution and the founders. Well, the award winning Finnish film director's explanation is telling primarily because it reveals an increasingly popular worldview, namely that faith is a very private thing and somehow detached from our everyday lives. Now, if that had been the case, we wouldn't be celebrating J.R.R. Tolkien or his work. Sadly, it's this perspective that's leading to either the neutralizing or downright neutering of faith in the public square. What's happened with Tolkien is similar to Hollywood's treatment of Madeleine L'Engle's um, A Wrinkle in Time, another Disney film released last year that deliberately excised the original author's faith. It also fell flat. So there's a pattern here. At the time, screenwriter Jennifer Lee defended the removal of the book's Christian theme, saying, I think there are a lot of elements of what she wrote that we have progressed as a society and we can move on to the other elements, end quote. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien's father died when he was just four years old and his mother died when he was 12. He and his brother uh, were raised by Father Francis Morgan, a Roman Catholic priest who was living in England. The two Tolkien boys celebrated mass with the Uh, The prelate every day growing up with the influence of Father Morgan and at such a transformative stage in a teenager's life was clearly foundational in major ways. Yet the viewers of the new film is left without or are left with, um, uh, well, having to guess how instrumental this influence uh, really was. Well, the only reason Hollywood producers and audiences find thematic depictions of faith boring is because they're unfamiliar with the dynamism of what true Christian faith is all about. Christianity is not a static, rote recitation of dogma, as Hollywood often depicts it. It's a vibrant and personal manifestation of the miraculous, the word made flesh, as the gospel writer John puts it. It's a lot more than silent praying parishioners and pews or the sound of sacred music echoing off cathedral walls. As a Christian... Uh, You would know that if you were outside the faith or perhaps a different tradition, uh, perhaps you would not. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien saw himself as a writer, not a pastor or theologian, but writers who are Christians often weave profound truths with their words, a habit the Englishman openly acknowledged. He said, we have come from God and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Indeed, only by myth making, only by becoming a sub creator and inventing stories can man ascribe to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. Again, a quote from Tolkien. Another uh, Tolkien observation stems from his study of storytelling, specifically why we're drawn to tales of all types, whether true or fictional. A fairy tale, he noted, always starts out well, but turns negative and foreboding. Then the hero arrives and the very bad thing suddenly becomes good.
or at least is transformed. In fact, the best-selling author even coined the word from a, for the happy turn in a story. He called it the, let's see, eucatastrophe. You catastrophe. That's how you pronounce it. Pronounce it as in the joyful you um, catastrophe. In other words, what first appears to be bad is often used by God for good. Reference to Romans. We're reminded of that insightful phrase and truth when Hollywood insists on secularizing profoundly Christian stories such as Tolkien for reasons of politics or profit. Although I think they would have benefited uh, in terms of profit if it had reflected his faith. Tolkien's life can no more be explained without his Christian faith than the history and the miracle of our country. In the end, the truth always finds a way out, especially the truth about the transforming and transcendent faith behind Tolkien's literary genius. While this film may have fallen flat, the questions are being asked as to why. He's a fascinating character that, uh, whose work is appreciated by men and women of faith and those outside of communities of faith. Perhaps a more faithful version will be uh, revisited at some point in the future. Well, taking a look at the remainder of this week on The Georgine Rice Show, on Wednesday we're going to talk with Jen Pollock-Michael, author of Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, and we'll be talking with her about that uh, tomorrow. On Thursday, my guest will be Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And if you have an interest in, if you have a heart for helping young people to embrace their faith in a way that will um, sustain them throughout um, adulthood and into old age. This is a great resource that was designed for you. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to a great week of, uh, of programming right here on the Georgine Rice Show. So I hope you will, uh, will join us. Well, once again, want to remind you that the uh, hymn sing on the West Side is coming up this Saturday. Wes Walterman uh, directing along with Paul Willie. That's 6 o'clock p.m. at Southwest Bible Church. There's a chicken dinner available if you want to purchase that for $10 at 4.30, and you can call the Singing Christmas Tree office for more details. want to thank James Blend for producing, Chris Williams for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.